Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 22 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, June the 30th. First, I'll be talking to Jonti Ayub, founder and CEO of AIMS, who'll talk about how people can protect themselves from online scams. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the market outlook for the next financial year. But now, let's talk to Jonti Ayub. Jonti, Australians have lost billions to online scams. How should they protect themselves from these scams? The, the point that we really need to stress here is buyers beware is probably going to be the first thing that, that comes in mind and my end in terms of advice. Um, you know, if something doesn't look right, don't do it. You know, nothing is free in this life. And when, you know, when we're... We're purchasing online and then we're, you know, put into a different database and we don't know where our data goes and then where our details go. And then we're next, you know, next minute we're given a UBUT offer or deal, you know, like a free iPhone for paying $2 in the delivery. It just doesn't make sense. So, you know, obviously that, that you know, that that's phishing for your information and phishing for your credit card details. And but yet you have to only purchase from trusted sites. Um, there are a few methods that help us identify and can help a user identify a trusted site there's always something that's you know quite unknown is at the top wherever you go to enter in the business's name or the website's name there's a padlock so that padlock identifies whether or not it's a secure site or not if the padlock's open it's a sign that it's an unsecured site so it's not verified when the padlock's closed it's a sign that the site's been verified. So these are the, the two things that have been put in place and have had a very uh, strong push recently to secure and prevent users' data from you know, the user's data from being compromised. You'd also have to check whether it's a reputable business too, wouldn't you? Absolutely. So there, you, you, can, you can do that. And, and let me just stress here, and we preach this at Ames Group all the time, always read the, the reviews. Before you purchase, open up a new window. If you're not very tech savvy, go to another device or, you know, your partner's phone. Type in the company's name in Google and read what they're about before you make that purchase. 
buyers beware and and it's the same thing the these principles are, are not new you know if you've you know I, i'm not sure where you're located but you know here in uh, in sydney you know the one of the most popular roads are called you know Parramatta road traditionally if you were driving down Parramatta road and saw a pop-up store you'd have a bit of buyers beware it's a new brand you don't know once you give your money if you're going to get the goods delivered so you do your research and online is the exact same thing you didn't in life, we never, we're always taught not to believe exactly what we see. And we have to have some level of, you know, due diligence in, in making sure that the, the, you've got the review platforms there. If, they, if they've had no reviews, then there's something wrong. If they've had five reviews and they're all good, then okay, that will, intra, yeah, that will increase your trust signal slightly. The same principles of, of life should always be applied to the online world as well. Uh, you would surely also have to check the terms and conditions and other details of what they're offering. Yeah, I, I think on a thorough level, if if you, I I, I personally do, but uh, you know, unfortunately, I think it was nearly eighty percent of buyers or eighty-two percent of online buyers don't read the terms and conditions. They're more interested in knowing price, delivery, how fast something can come, and and yeah, to the terms and conditions are one of what we see one of the less, <laughs> the, the smallest red pages uh, on a site pre-purchase but you know yes terms and conditions are very important they're obviously governed by common law as well so you know there is a little bit of consumer protection there but yes it, it also has you know caused problems previously by buyers again buyers beware you're always told to read the t's and c's but the, people simply don't do that no? yeah we find people we find many buyers don't do that many users don't read the terms and conditions you'd be quite surprised at how large of a number that is what about checking the url of the site uh yes very important so you know checking the url is as mentioned previously you know by looking at the url you're able to take the business the actual business name and then you know do a simple google search um, and read up on that company's profile and see if they're you know a verified business a legitimate business and and i have to stress the url has a padlock on it if the padlock's open then it's not a trusted site. So that business hasn't applied the right principles of security online for their business. Okay. So, I mean, but the issue too is that I mean, a lot of people sort of going into this, but they're not exactly tech savvy. So how much of an issue is that? I, I'm not going to say it's a great issue. Um, I think the experience of online has, has come, a, come a very long way at helping, helping anyone of any language and of any uh, you know, tech background to make a purchase and view a product online. Scamming is where what we're seeing a massive rise across across the whole world. We're seeing a very big rise in hackers and scamming, you know, scam artists, what I call them, using, playing on the vulnerabilities of people not being tech savvy. So by not being tech savvy, you don't understand when you click a link or when you are asked to click on something that the technology that's being used is there to basically extract all of your personal information. It could be from your bank accounts. It could be your driver's license. It could be, you know, anything that you've kind of left on there and you don't know how to remove it. So you wouldn't know how to delete whatever they've put in place. So not being tech savvy is kind of detrimental there. Uh, but to make a secure online purchase, it shouldn't be a problem. It, it should be quite simple. And if it's a good business in place, they've put the right, the right, they've got the right user flow there to help anyone of any experience make that essential purchase. 
Has that been an issue, uh, the, the rise in scammers? Yes, it has. So, you know, phishing and, and on, on the most simplest level, data stealing is, has risen massively, but also credit card information, purchase order history, stolen, a lot of different apps, you know, anything, got to, anything that's on that phone of yours is now able to be hacked. If you click the wrong link without that buyer's beware or that gaming beware, your information is more than likely going to end up on the other side of the world. That's, that's quite extraordinary. And so... It's a scary time, you know, across the world or even now, you know, in, you know a, lot of, a lot of people have bought their parents, their grandparents, these devices and once curious once they get the device they click through they look that you know they're impressed they they see and then they begin their online journey and you know very instantly not knowing that there's a lot of a lot of scamming out there and they, they're targeting the vulnerable at the moment so the key for people now is buyer beware i believe so well Jonty, thank you very much for your time it's been terrific thank you you're very welcome thank you very much pleasure to meet you and now let's talk to amp capital chief economist shane oliver well, Shane, what's your view about uh, what's going to be happening in the markets and the year ahead? Look, I think we'll probably see a rising trend in share markets, but uh, it will probably have a correction along the way, at least. Um, we have seen good gains from where markets ended the last financial year, back in June last year. Markets are up quite solidly since then, but now they're looking a little bit overbought. We've got ongoing concerns about recession. Uh, we would think that recession is a 50% uh, probability or possibility in Australia. So it's a 50 50 pro- proposition at present. Uh, and obviously that raises uh, threats to company profits. And it's still unclear that central banks have finished raising interest rates. I think they're close to the top, but by the same token, we could still have a bit more to go. So all of those things could give us a bit of short-term uh, volatility, potential correction through into the September quarter. Albeit I know that July is usually okay, but August, September, October are usually a bit rough. But on a 12-month horizon, I think we will see clear evidence that inflation's coming back under control and central banks will be able to get off the brakes and, and start cutting interest rates through the next calendar year. So that should help markets on a 12-month horizon, even though the next, the next few months might be a bit rough. Uh, but the problem with inflation is it's quite sticky. It is, and some countries worse than others. The US inflation rate has come down quite nicely from 9% about a year ago to 4% now. But we are seeing issues in, for example, the UK and maybe in Australia, where we're seeing second round effects, which risk perpetuating high inflation, notably via strong wage growth. In the UK, wages growth is running at 7%. In Australia, it's still below 4%, but there's lots of telltale signs there, including the Fair Work Commission's decision to increase the minimum wage by 8.6%. But we're going to see stronger wages growth ahead, and that risks uh, perpetuating higher inflation to the extent that companies then have to pass on higher costs. So that's obviously a bit of a risk in the short term. I think ultimately, though, as economies slide into very weak growth, potentially recession, history tells us that that leads to weaker labour markets and lower wages growth and lower inflation. And I think we'll see the same thing this time around, but it may take a little bit longer to get to that point compared to what we might have been hoping for six or 12 months ago. What was worrying was the Bank of England this week sort of increased their rates by 0.50 basis points. That's quite worrying. And that's up to 5%. That's right. I mean, that's sort of in the band. Don't, don't forget the Fed is over 5%. President is still signalling more in the US. The thing about the UK is that their inflation rate is still rising. Well, the, the 
the underlying rate of inflation is still rising. It rose to 7.1% on the on the so-called core measure. And they've got uh, very strong wages growth impacting as well. Whereas in the US, you, c- you can make an argument that wages growth is actually slowing down, so taking pressure off. Whereas in the UK, it's it's still rising. So that's why we've seen that more aggressive response from the Bank of England. Yeah, there was some talk a few months ago that the Bank of England may be near the top or maybe done. That's now getting reversed. But I, I think they are a bit of an outlier. Europe is seeing better trend in inflation, lower inflation, more of a downswing occurring, and likewise in the US. But obviously, there is a bit of a read-through from what's going on in the UK to Australia. It shows what happens if wages growth look like they're getting too strong. Central banks worry that that then will perpetuate high inflation as you end up with a wage price spiral, as we saw in the 1970s. Now, don't get me wrong here. I think everyone wants to see their wages keep up or exceed or wages growth exceed inflation. But when it's keeping up with inflation at around 7 or 8%, um, that's not such a good thing. I mean, it just perpetuates uh, that high inflation number. And ultimately, if that happens, it will be a bad thing for everybody because it will mean permanently much higher interest rates than we've currently got and probably much higher unemployment to get it back down. So that's why central banks need to be guard against that. What's your prognosis for the Australian inflation? I mean, that seems to be not going down at all. Well, it has it has come down. The monthly measure... Well, if you look at the quarterly measure, it's come down from 7.8% at the end of last year to 7%. So it has rolled over. The monthly measure, which is a bit more timely, peaked at 8 point, above 8%, I think at 8.3%. It's currently fallen back to 6.8%. Back in March, it had fallen as low as 6.3%. And there's a good chance that when some new numbers come out this week, we'll see a further leg down in that measure. But it's still too high. Whether it's 6% or 6.8%, it's still too high. And that's why I, I think you're probably going to see the, uh, the Reserve Bank maintain a tightening bias. We had thought they were done or pretty close to it. Uh, we still think they are pretty close to the top, but it looks like we're going to see probably another two hikes from the RBA. And they've become, seemingly, have become more hawkish after the Fair Work Commission decision to grant much higher increases in minimum wage and award wages compared to last year. So they're now a lot more concerned that you're going to go down the UK path and that's leading to a more hawkish response by the RBA and and largely explains why we've moved to the view that the risk of recession here is now 50%. So you're saying we're probably going to get rate rises in July and August? Probably July and August. If we don't get one in July, then I think it will come in August and that'll be August, September. I mean, the RBA may decide, well, we've got time for another pause, you know, like the Fed. The Fed has said that there's still more to do on rates to control inflation, but they can move at a more moderate pace. And that means having a pause every so often or skipping a meeting. Uh, so they may well do that at next week's meeting if the inflation numbers for May um, show a bit of a, a pullback. But I, I think cutting beyond that, um, the RBA will still conclude that inflation's too high, that the threats to, to stronger wages growth locking in inflation at higher levels have become high and therefore they'll maintain this um, this inclination to hike again. So yes, we are looking for another 2.25% hikes probably in July, but if not uh, another one in July, then it'll come in August and the next one will be in September. Which would take the rates up to what? Well, we're currently 4.1% with the cash rates. Uh, that would take the cash rate up to 4.6%. We, uh, I mean, if you look at it economically, I think the Reserve Bank's already done enough and, and is <laughs> threatening to knock us off the narrow path they refer to into recession. There's a lot of pain coming down pipeline for consumers. We're now seeing the 40% of homeowners or, or homeowners with a mortgage had locked into fixed rates. They're now rolling over 
to a much higher rate. Uh, they'd locked in a few years ago at 2%. They're now rolling over to something like 5 6%, probably around 6%. And that's quite a, a big blow to household spending power. Obviously, uh, the Reserve Bank's also done analysis showing that something like 15% of those on variable rates uh, this year will move into negative cash flow. That is, their, their after-tax income uh, will be less than their spending on essential items and servicing their debt, um, which is a fairly dire situation because it means they have to to dip into their savings, or if not, uh, they could run into financial difficulties. Now, of course, that analysis was done on the cash rate rising to 3.75%, and we're now at 4.1%, and it looks like we're going to go higher. So there's probably going to be more people in negative cash flow as this year proceeds than even the Reserve Bank was assuming just a few months ago. So th th that's where the bulk of the weakness will come from. It will come from the consumer. I know a lot of people say, well, you know, the unemployment rate's only 3.6%. You know, it's, that's near a 50-year low. Share market's up from its lows last year. Economy's still growing. Restaurants are doing pretty well. You know, the roads are full. Lots of people traveling overseas. What's the problem? Well, that's what people were saying in 1989 as well. And then, of course, 1990 came around and we ended up in, in deep recession. It, it, there's always a lag in the way monetary policy impacts. And we are already starting to see cracks emerge with uh, falling real retail sales, um, business conditions look to be rolling over. We're seeing a pickup in business insolvencies as reported in the media today. We're seeing um, obviously a big collapse in building approvals, appro approvals to build new homes. Anecdotes from companies uh, are turning far less positive, in fact, quite negative. So I, I think we are going to see quite a sharp slowdown ahead, if not uh, recession. With the RBA, I mean, there's going to be a new governor, new administration, the RBA. How do you think they're going to go? Well, uh, hopefully there's not a new one. I, I think it makes sense to stick with the current leadership because we are halfway through a war on inflation and if we change leaders then the new leader has to re-establish their anti-inflation credentials which may mean higher interest rates or a delay in getting inflation back down so I, I think it makes sense to, to stick with what we have that said the government you know there's a lot of talk that there will be a change the government might be preferring to do that some might see this as payback for you know, the the misgu misguidance on interest rates a few years ago and also you know, payback for the pain that high interest rates are causing. But that also runs the risk of looking like political interference. But I think providing the new governor has good credentials and so far the people that have been mentioned in the media, including Michelle Bullock, the current deputy governor, and Stephen Kennedy, the head of treasury and also the head of finance, I mean, providing it's someone with good credentials, uh, commitment to the low inflation target, then I think you, know, you could, could see a bit of uh, uncertainty initially, but ultimately it wouldn't necessarily result in a radically different outcome. It could just result in a bit of period where they may have to raise interest rates more than low would have had to do. But I think bottom line is that as long as the target is remains in place at 2 to 3% and the review indicates or has recommended that, then uh, ultimately it's not going to make a huge difference if they change the leader, except in the short term that it might make it that the new leader will have to establish their anti-inflation credentials. But in view of the stickiness of inflation, it could take some time before it gets down to 2 to 3%. Look, it could. The Reserve Bank is currently saying that it won't get to the top of that range till 2025, but I think that could be changed. If we slide into recession and unemployment starts rising and you've got less people going out to restaurants and spending on hospitality and other areas, then that stickiness will start to abate pretty quickly. And then we'll be talking about you know, discounting again. Uh, and to some degree, you're seeing signs of that in the US. You go back a year or so ago, all of the anecdotes were about how higher price. Now in the US, you're seeing more of a mix. Yeah, sure, some prices are still going up, but you also hear more about lower prices. Even rents in the US 
almost look like they're starting to roll over. So but what is the case today won't necessarily hang around. If we go into a, um, a steeper slowdown in the economy, higher unemployment, potentially recession, today's inflation problem could turn into, could, could swing back to a, a low inflation problem in a few years years down the track so a fair way to go on all of that yet but and i and i agree that inflation right now is too high and it'll take a while to get it down but history tells us that if you go into recession or even a steep slowdown you do see less in the way of inflationary pressure well shane thank you very much for your time my pleasure leon and i i guess uh there's been a lot of talk about the taylor swift uh concerts uh, in february maybe we're going to need uh, a bit of a, a lift from taylor swift when she comes here to help us uh, shake off the malaise um, regarding you know, the hit to the economy from higher interest rates do well shane thank you very much for your time thanks leon take care so what's happening in the news well renowned investor jim it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rogers, a veteran American big shot who has worked closely with George Soros and co-founded Soros Fund Management, recently made a startling prediction about the future of the financial market. According to Rogers, the next bear market will be the most significant in the last 80 years, drawing parallels to the great financial crisis of 2008 and foreseeing an even worse scenario. Rogers has highlighted the mounting levels of debt within the global economic system as a crucial factor that will eventually trigger a severe bear market in risk asset. Pairing the current state of affairs to the 2008 crisis, he emphasised that the debt levels have skyrocketed since then, making the situation far more precarious. Rogers also drew attention to the great inflationary crisis of 1980, recalling the substantial interest rates and treasury yields that were necessary to combat inflation at the time. He warns that a similar situation could be on the horizon for the market. The concerns raised by Rogers extend across multiple markets, including property, stocks, bonds and currencies. During the 1980s, interest rates on Treasury bills reached staggering heights of over 21% during the last massive inflationary storm that struck the market. And governments around the world should raise taxes or cut public spending to help central banks tame inflation and mitigate the risk of a financial crisis, the Bank for International Settlements has said. Central Bank's bank, which often operates as an informal mouthpiece for the institution, said governments were testing the boundaries of what might be called the regional stability by leaving fiscal policy loose while inflation remains high and interest rates are rapid, rising rapidly. Fiscal consolidation would provide critical support in the inflation fight, the BIS said in its annual report published on Sunday. It would also reduce the need for monetary policy to keep interest rates higher for longer, thereby reducing the risk of financial instability. Traditionally, there's been a separation between fiscal policy set by governments and monetary policy set by central banks and targeted to control inflation or taking account of the levels of public spending and taxation. Central banks have insisted they are confident in their ability to separate monetary policy decisions from financial stability concerns, 
but the BIS's concern contrasts with those assurances. Chances of a financial crisis are significant, given that interest rates are high and still rising, the BIS said. However, it added that this risk could be reduced if governments tightened fiscal policy, taking some pressure off interest rates as a primary policy pool and strengthening countries' public finances. And oil and gas majors are stepping up efforts to break into lithium to diversify beyond fossil fuels as hopes rise over a technological breakthrough to produce a metal critical for electric car batteries. ExxonMobil, Schlumberger, Occidental Petroleum and Equinor are exploring whether their core skills of pumping, processing and re-injecting underground fluids, such as oil and water, could be deployed to process lithium from unconventional brines and resources, helping to ease forecast shortages of material expected to be vital for the energy transition. There are a number of oil and gas majors putting a lot of time and attention into how they can become big in lithium, said Brian Manel, chief executive of TechMet, a mining investment fund backed by the US government. TechMet has a stake in Energy Source Minerals, or ESM, a lithium developer backed by oilfield services giant Schlumberger. The potential push into lithium comes as producers from Exxon and Chevron in the US to Equinor and BP in Europe try to remain profitable amid a global effort to curb emissions and transition from fossil fuels to cleaner energy. Oil majors' drive into lithium would reassure automakers that at present rely on small, unproven miners to deliver the vast quantities of lithium needed to electrify their vehicles in the coming decade as Western countries ban sales of new petrol and diesel cars and as electric vehicle use soars in China. And high interest rates are expected to make the Australian economy one of the worst performed across the Asia-Pacific over the next two years, with warnings of full impact of the Reserve Bank's aggressive tightening of monetary policy has yet to be felt. Ratings agency S&P Global has forecast Australia's economy to expand by just 1.4% this calendar year, making it the fifth slowest of the 14 major Asia-Pacific economies tracked by the organisation. Next year, it is tipping growth to slow to 1.2%, dragging Australia down to the second worst economy in the region, ahead of only Japan, which is expected to expand by 1.1%. S&P has sliced half a percentage point from its forecast earlier this year on the Australian economy, due largely to the growing impact of the RBA's sharp increases in interest rates this year. And PricewaterhouseCoopers plans to exit all government advisory work, entering an exclusivity agreement to divest its federal and state government business electro funds for one dollar in the wake of the tax leak scam. The one dollar price tag means a consulting business has effectively lost all its value. Allegro would meet the cost of setting up and running the new venture if the deal goes ahead. It will have about $300 million in theoretical billings and it will only provide consulting services to public sector organisations. The big four consulting firm on Sunday announced it would aim to sign a binding agreement with Allegro funds by the end of July. At the same time it revealed Kevin Burrows will be appointed as Chief Executive Officer. Government work accounted for 20% of BWC's revenue in the 2023 financial year and will impact its future size and operations, the firm said in a statement. Around 130 PwC partners and up to 2,000 employees would move across to the new business known as Project Bell. PwC's inability to deal with its tax leak scandal led to the Department of Finance effectively banning PwC from winning any new contracts from the Commonwealth last month, all but destroying a business previously worth about $250 million in buildings a year. The difference in the size of the buildings is due to the inclusion of the firm's risk consulting arm in the potential deal. The proposed new company will involve former PwC partners providing government health, infrastructure, defence and risk advisory consulting services. It will have separate systems and offices from PwC and operate throughout Australia. Bell's interim leadership team is made up of 
10 PwC partners. Tim Jackson, PwC's Global Government and Public Service Advisory Leader. David Sachs, firm's Government Consulting Practice Leader. Jamie Briggs, the firm's Adelaide Management Partner. Ben Neal, the firm's Defence Leader Partner. Chris Rogan, the firm's Markets Managing Partner. Adrian Box, PwC's National Leader for Integrated Infrastructure. Trisha Tepper, the firm's Perth Consulting Lead Partner. Diane Rutter, Kate Evans and Josh Chalmer. And if PwC and Electro are the 10 partners who will lead Bell can actually pull it off, it could change the big four accounting consulting oligopoly forever. That's because Bell, or whatever the business ends up being called, will give up all private sector work and a move specifically designed to deal with what a Senate report last week described as a conflict at the heart of the PwC scandal. The fact the firm has always worked as a tax agent and advisor for the private sector while also advising the public sector. Bellwood specialise in work for government departments and agencies, public sector organisations such as universities and public health bodies. The idea is that by steering clear of the private sector, Bell simply couldn't do what PwC did, use secret government information to help corporate clients and make profits for itself. The new body will also need to adhere to the Australian Public Service Code of Conduct. Notably, none of the 63 PwC partners and staff on the infamous list of people who received the tax information would work for the new company, nor will anyone associated with other government scandals such as RoboDebt. The hope is that a pure-play, independent government consulting firm would have a distinct advantage over the likes of Deloitte, KPMG and EY, which would continue to face a challenge of managing the structural conflict that the Senate Committee wants addressed. That's not to mention McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group, who have a model where they advise governments on policy and then companies affected by that policy on strategy. Which begs the question, if Bell does get off the ground, and that remains a big if at this stage, could the other members of the Big Four be forced to contemplate a similar split? And Singapore-based PwC veteran Kevin Burrows is a safe pair of hands who has been parachuted into its Australian headquarters to help steer the firm out of the controversy that has erupted its local business and severely embarrassed its global partners. British-born Burrows, a PwC partner for, for 19 years, is currently PwC's clients and industry's leader, with a strong background in financial services. With PwC's New York-based global chair, Borat Boris, delivering a scathing criticism of his Australian leadership, which he said had failed to meet the network's code of conduct and uphold its professional standards and values, Burroughs will have a major role by restoring trust in the, in the organisation's Australian business. PwC's Australian chair, Justin Carroll, said Burroughs' experience across other parts of the accounting firm network would allow him to bring a fresh perspective to the firm. He said Burroughs would work with his colleagues and management team to re-earn trust with PwC Australia's stakeholders. In a statement, Burroughs said he would work tirelessly to increase transparency and repair trust with our stakeholders while also enhancing our governance and culture. Burroughs took up his current role in Singapore in July 2020 after four years as a member PwC's UK's executive board where he was managing partner clients and markets. And some of the world's biggest car companies say Australia must urgently adopt globally competitive fuel efficiency targets if it wants to boost imports of affordable electric vehicles and ensure the carbon-intensive transport sector has its fair share of contributing to legally binding climate targets. In a new submission to the Albanese government, key industry group for electric vehicle manufacturers, retailers, importers and charging station suppliers, recommends the introduction of credible and ambitious vehicle pollution limits to reward car makers for, for bringing more low and zero emissions vehicles into the local market and penalising those who do not. Australia trades globally on the adoption of electric vehicles. Just 3.8% of new vehicles sales were electric last year, compared with 8% in the United States, 23% in Britain and 25% in Europe, the International Energy Agency says. 
The Albanese government has set a target to cut emissions by 43% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland have set targets for EVs to reach 50% of new car sales by 2030 and 100% by 2035. But without strict pollution limits that match the ambitious goals set by the United States and the European Union, car makers would have to target countries with more attractive policies, the Council says. The US fuel efficiency standard forecast to cut the country's emissions by 40% by the end of the decade is designed to boost sales of electric vehicles by 1,000% so they account for 67% of new passenger car sales sold in the US by 2032. And almost $270 billion of Australian home loans are at risk of defaulting or being classified as severely stressed in the next year as the borrowers behind zombie mortgages struggle to keep up with their repayments. COVID-19 mortgage boom may come to haunt the major banks warned Baron Joey banking analyst John Bott as loans written when interest rates were at record lows become increasingly expensive to service as the employment outlook deteriorates and the cost of living fights. This follows 12 cash rate increases from the Reserve Bank over the past 13 months that have added about $20,000 to annual repayments on a $750,000 loan. As RBA Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock warned, unemployment had to reach 4.5% in the next 18 months to tame persistently high inflation. Mr Mott said Australia wasn't likely to hit the technical recession to straight quarters of economic contraction and the jobless rate which could stretch its size. 5% and create a wave of zombie mortgages. New Zealand's economy slipped into recession this month. This will have a significant impact on many mortgages who borrow their maximum, the bank analyst said. Many of these customers are likely to fall into delinquency as serviceability buffers have been exceeded, real wages have fallen, and additional work is likely to become harder to come by. The big four banks wrote $267 billion in home loans over the 2022 financial years to borrowers who took on debt of more than six times their income. Analysis by Baron Joey found a debt-to-income ratio of six times or more is considered risky by the prudential regulator. And social media giants will be hit with millions of dollars in fines if they repeatedly fail to remove disinformation and misinformation from their platforms under a major crackdown by the Albanese government. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland on Sunday released draft legislation to give the Australian Communications and Media Authority, or ACMA, powers to hold digital platforms to account spreading the harmful fake news. Under the proposed laws, the authority would be able to impose a new code on specific companies that repeatedly fail to combat misinformation and disinformation or an industry-wide standard to force digital platforms to remove harmful content. The maximum penalty for breaching an industry standard would be $6.88 million, or 5% of the company's global turnover. In the case of Facebook's Meta, for example, the maximum penalty could amount to a fine of more than $8 billion. Codes or standards could include requiring platforms to have better tools to identify and report misinformation, a more robust complaint handling process, and greater use of fact checkers. Under proposed laws, the ACMA would also be able to obtain information and documents from digital platforms relating to misinformation and disinformation on their services. But the government says the ACMA would not have a role in determining what is true or false. The draft legislation went out for public consultation from Sunday, which Roland said would give companies and the public a chance to have their say. And business collapses have hit their highest monthly level in more than seven years, as failures spread beyond property construction to retail, healthcare, childcare and mining. Higher interest rates, weaker consumer spending and directors throwing in the keys after a temporary pandemic reprieve are the main reason for the jump in insolvencies. Insolvency and restructuring appointments hit 868 last month, the highest monthly results since November 2015, according to analysis of Australian Securities Investments Commission data. While some of the spike is attributed to a catch-up 
of struggling businesses that delayed foldings during the pandemic. Insolvency practitioners say momentum is building after a quiet few years. Insolvency work fell to record lows during the pandemic due to massive stimulus payments for businesses, loan repayment deferrals granted by banks, rent waivers by landlords, the Australian Taxation Office giving firms a breather and the Australian Government's temporary insolvency moratorium. Some 7,158 companies went bust in the 11 months to May 31 this year, leaving administrator appointments on track to match or exceed pre-pandemic levels recorded between 2017 and 19 financial years. Appointments have hit 2032 in construction, 1,013 in accommodation food services, 419 in retail and 423 in manufacturing. Collapsed home builder Porter Davis has been the highest profile casualty, but more businesses outside the troubled construction sector are also appointing administrators or being wound up as debt and equity finances becomes more challenging. These include stripping transport group stocks, refrigerated logistics, rapid delivery service, milk run, beauty and skincare group BWX and craft beer company Tribe Brewing. And sentiment among manufacturers has plunged to its lowest level since the global financial crisis as the industry grapples with rising costs and a slow economy, with some firms predicted to go bust. A net 32% of manufacturers expect the general business situation to worsen over the next six months, according to AWCI Westpac Industrial Trends Survey for the June quarter. The figure represented a sharp deterioration from the March quarter, when a net 15% of respondents thought conditions would get worse and, and was the weakest outcome in 14 years. The release of the survey comes amid mounting evidence that growth in the economy is slowing in response to the fastest interest rates tightening cycle in a generation. While higher interest rates have so far failed to tame inflation or to force a meaningful increase in the unemployment rate, they have contributed to a downturn in discretionary spending and a souring in consumer and business sentiment. And that 10% of manufacturers predict their profits will decline in the coming year, according to the AWCI Westpac survey. A Medibank private will have to set aside $250 million as insurers against issues associated with a major data breach last year, with the Prudential Regulator also reviewing the company's governance and risk culture. The decision by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority would likely increase the risk of adverse class action rulings against the company, according to equities analyst JP Morgan. The additional capital adequacy requirement, which came as a surprise to some in the market, was a short to medium term negative for the stock itself and arguably indicates increased risk of adverse findings in the class actions against them related to the cyber breach. The investment bank's Siddharth Paramesawaran wrote in a note to clients on Tuesday, the company is facing three class action lawsuits from customers and shareholders because of the breach. Morris Blackburn has also filed a complaint to the Office of, to the, office of the Australian Information Commissioner which could force Medibank to compensate affected companies. In October, almost 10 million customer records were stolen from Medibank by criminal hackers who later released parts of the information after demanding a random payment. The stolen data included sensitive information from, on 480,000 policyholders, medical conditions and treatment. In late April, the company said it would introduce changes to its systems after being handed a report on the breach conducted by Deloitte. However, the company will not release support or its recommendation. And the executive chairman of Bigger Cheese, which owns Dairy Farmer and the Dairy Farmers Biggie and Farmers Union milk brands, along with Vegemite, says labour shortages on dairy farms are contributing to rising milk prices for the households. Barry Irvin said there had been a 9% drop in the volume of milk being produced by dairy farmers in Australia in the past two years, a reduction of 700 litres. Fierce competition for the shrinking pool of milk which all pay, including private label brand owners such as supermarket chain Coles, are chasing, is keeping farm gate prices high, along with rising input costs and inflation. This is at a time when global dairy prices for products such as skim milk powder have fallen about 30% in the past three to four months. But Mr Irvin said the disconnect between pricing in the two different parts of its business 
branded products and bulk dairy commodities would prompt write downs of between $180 million and $280 million of bigger cheese. The company is reviewing some operations at dairy plants at Koroit and Tatura in country Victoria as it assesses the final extent of write-downs across the company. And Latitude's woes could become even costlier after being hit with a million-dollar lawsuit by a former mayoral candidate, who, who said the firm's negligence meant his personal details were shared in an, on the dark web. The firm was hit by a cyber-attack in March after a hacker used privileged credentials from a third-party vendor to access its systems and steal the data of 7.9 million customers. Sharia Sean Safari was one of the few people affected by the hack and is now pursuing Latitude Financial Services Australia for $1 million in damages in a federal court case filed earlier this month. According to documents filed with the court, Safari held a low-rate Latitude Mastercard credit card. He had his personal information stolen in the data breach and provided to the dark web where other parties could use it for financial gain. Safari, who was an unsuccessful independent candidate for Maitland's mayoralty in 2021, claims the firm failed to take reasonable steps to protect and secure his data, breaching both his privacy and its duty of care to protect him from harm. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Andrew Kuno, who created Foundation, an Australian-made personal care product that donates 100% of all its profits to registered tar- charities supporting the survivors domestic violence in Australia. And I'll be talking about how my tea economist Sinclair Davidson about the likelihood of recession. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.